From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The pandemic continues to keep a tight grip on the supply chain. And when it comes to cars, inventory is low, prices are high, and that may be driving some people to buy out of state. It's a lot cheaper to fly on a $200 flight to a location and get your vehicle as opposed to spending three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 more on a car, you know, above its MSRP and then some. We'll explore if the pandemic may have forever changed how we buy cars. Then, as the state works to shift to wind and solar to meet its climate goals, farmers in one Colorado county are saying, not in their backyards. Plus, the Pikes Peak Poet Laureate and the power of poetry. There is a message and experience and a type of medicine that so many of us need. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel near Glenwood Springs. If you've been hoping to score a deal on a new or used car these days, you might have to look pretty hard to find it. It's no secret the pandemic has upended the way we buy cars, new or used. The scarcity on lots has changed the game for consumer and dealer both in the sticker price and even how we test drive cars. Here to break down what's going on are three people who know the industry. Tim Jackson is president of the Colorado Automobile Dealers Association. Kada is the voice of the state's auto dealers. Automotive journalist Roman Micah and Nathan Adlin are with TFL Cars, based in Boulder. Their seven YouTube channels have well over 2 million subscribers. Tim, Roman, Nathan, thanks for being here. Good morning. Good morning, Nathan. Yeah, you bet. Glad to be here. So, Tim, I want to start with you. You recently told the Colorado Springs Gazette that car dealers across the state say their inventory is, for the most part, down 90%. That's a huge number. Can you break down for us exactly why that is? I'm assuming it's more than just a lack of parts, right? Well, it is almost totally because of supply chain issues. Uh, The one that's most recognized is the chip shortage, and that's been pretty widely publicized. But automakers are having trouble getting other parts as well. Uh, There's actually a steel shortage, a shortage of aluminum, shortage of foam that goes into the dash. There's a rubber shortage, of course, that makes tires and and other car parts. And there's a shortage now of wiring harnesses. So I think the supply chain issues that are prevalent, not just in the auto industry, but now today, largely in society, are really wreaking havoc in the auto industry from a production standpoint. And that 90% that you cited, Nathan, uh, some of our dealers and consumers wish it was just 90%. We've had dealers run completely out of cars. I had a dealer, an Audi dealer, tell me at the end of August, they sold their last Audi in inventory. They had no more Audis. That doesn't mean that they won't the next day or the next week or or the next month, but um, others are in the pipeline. It just means that for consumers, they have a much more limited choice when they come onto dealer lots. That's all changing the way the consumer buys a car, right? For someone in Colorado who wants to buy the hottest new car, let's say the new Ford Bronco, for example, they're having to order them online, sight unseen. 
then wait months and months to receive their car. How is that impacting the dealerships? We know how that impacts the consumer. They want their car, right? But I'm assuming no money exchanges hands until the owner gets their new car, right? Well, yeah, or it may be a, a small deposit. It could be $100 or $500. Ford has, in the case of the Bronco, they have a website set up so the consumers can reserve a car directly through Ford and, and choose what dealer to be delivered at. Uh, almost all dealers will have what is called a mannequin model. That is, they can go onto a dealer lot and um, and see that one unit that is there for that express purpose. They can take a test drive in it, walk around it, sit in it, see how it fits, see how it looks, see how it feels. Although, like in that Audi dealer, probably none left in that store. I mean, does that mean layoffs for, for car dealers and things like that? Oh, not at all. Uh, well... I, w- I wouldn't say not at all, but very limited, if any. Uh, frankly, the um, maybe in the sales office, there's uh, less need for as many salespeople if there aren't as many cars that can be sold. But for the most part, dealers are not suffering financially through this, or they really the automakers are they're actually doing very well. It's a it's a reverse uh, economics in in that situation. So it really hasn't affected employment, and not in Colorado, not in the U.S., hmm. on the dealership lots or the automakers for the most part so far. Despite this obvious shortage, though, you can't turn on a sporting event or a movie on television without seeing ads imploring someone to buy new cars. So if someone gets excited by an ad and want to get a car, it seems like they're going to be pretty disappointed when they go to the dealer and hear that it's going to be months and months and months before they get said car. Is that something of a bait and switch? Well, um, it, there is limited inventory, but you know, right now, and um, as I mentioned on ordering that Bronco, um, really the best way for a new car customer to buy the next their next new car or truck, if it is not in inventory, is to do it through either through an automaker website if they have that portal set up, or directly through the dealer. Almost all cars still today, uh, new cars, when that car comes in, it's it's either uh, at a little bit below, a little bit above, or right at MSRP. So that's a good way to um, ensure that they're going to get that new car. The difference between normal times and now is there is a, a somewhat of a wait. It could be it could be 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, or sometimes more, depending on the popularity of the model. Roman, Nathan, I want to bring you into the conversation. You're both automotive journalists based in Boulder, and your company, TFL Cars, has a number of YouTube channels as well as a website focused on everything from trucks and SUVs to motorcycles and off-roading. And with nearly 3 million subscribers, your YouTube videos essentially test drive cars for viewers. Take a listen. Now, remember when I was talking about the fact that it doesn't have a vacuum? One of the reasons why minivans, sorry, MPVs, vehicles like this, have vacuums is because kids tend to get into certain types of cereal and they tend to make a bit of a mess and it gets everywhere. (laughs) That was Nathan reviewing the 2022 Kia Carnival minivan, opening a package of cereal and literally throwing it all over the van. I think there are many who'd love to try this on their test drive, but of course can't. Nathan, Roman, are you finding more people coming to your site and your YouTube channels to essentially have you test drive vehicles they can't get their hands on? Well, absolutely. Um, One of the fringe benefits of what we do is the fact that we get to drive pretty much every car that's out there. And because we've driven so many of them, we do have a unique perspective. Uh, Roman, just recently, Roman, where did you just come back from? Uh, Was it a Porsche event or was it a BMW event? 
I just came back actually from a Volkswagen event where I got to drive the full line of Volkswagen vehicles. Uh, and then before that, I got to drive the full line of BMW vehicles. So uh, we're very privileged that we get to go to beautiful places. I was in Asheville and I was in Palm Springs uh, driving some really cool cars. And then, uh, of course, that gives us kind of um, an inside look into the auto industry because we get to talk with the manufacturer or sometimes with the CEOs of the company, lots of times with the PR teams, uh, and so um, you know we're we're kind of we're kind of inside um, the automotive industry with our access, and and that's you know that's a great place to be, especially now because I've I've never seen a time like this in the automotive world. I, I can't echo what Tim was saying enough. I mean, there are just no cars out there right now for people to buy. It's um, it's quite staggering, and 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 in a, in some ways that is reshaping the way that people are buying cars uh, and it's reshaping the way that manufacturers are selling cars. We're kind of in this perfect storm of, um, of lack of supply, new methods of selling cars uh, and uh, new methods of buying cars at the same time. It's, it's quite interesting. You know, they say there's that Chinese proverb, right? May you live in interesting times. Well, by gosh, we are living in interesting times. <laughs> that is true. And Nathan, have things changed because of the pandemic where you're seeing maybe an increase in viewership because of this? What was interesting is to see the um, the way the the, the, the numbers moved. Uh, at first, we were, like everybody else, we were in crisis mode. But yes, indeed, some of our numbers started moving up noticeably. And when the pandemic hit, and as a lot of people, including our competitors, were, were sort of fading out a little bit, we were increasing, and uh, Roman had had us put the proverbial uh, pedal to the floor, so to speak. And we actually cranked out a lot of videos during that time. Viewership, yes, it has increased a bit, but on top of that, the feedback we're getting from our viewers—I mean, combined—I think we're over twenty million last month in terms of viewers. They're talking to us, and they're asking us questions, and we're responding to it, and it's a lot more noticeable, a lot more active than it was before the pandemic. Tim, do you think consumers will ever go to the lot again and see dozens of cars with different options? Or has the buyer fundamentally changed picking maybe their options online rather than saying, hey, here's a blue one, here's a red one, here's a green one? You know, I think just historically, and this is statistically valid over time, let's say over the past 10 to 15 years, the number of unique visits to a dealership in a car buying search has reduced. And the last data I saw on it was one6 dealership visits. By the way, I don't know how they make that 0.6 of a visit, but that's <laughs> statistically correct across the uh, across the industry. But I do think that, and it'd be interesting what Roman and, and uh, Nathan Adlin think on this, uh, but I, I do think consumers, they're, they're narrowing the search, but they still want to drive and feel that car. They still want to be able to kick the tires, sit in it, see how it fits, and take that car for a spin. So I think I think all of the things that, that our dealers are providing and the industry is providing and TFL cars and TFL trucks is providing is part of that uh, online uh, shopping experience. But I think the buying experience, for the most part, will still involve a test drive. Can I jump in on this, Nathan? Uh, so I was recently speaking with uh, the CEO of Ram, uh, and I asked him that very question. Uh, and he told me that they do not want to go back to a time when a dealership had, let's say, 500 trucks on the lot. Uh, and then they were competing hand and fist to try to get consumers to buy their products. In other words, cash on the hood, you know, those days where one dealer is being 
put up against another dealer. Uh, having said that, I was also talking to another manufacturer and they felt that we're, we are going to return to those days at some point because one of the manufacturers will blink. In other words, you know, it only takes one manufacturer to start pumping out a lot of trucks, a lot of cars, uh, and then the other manufacturers are going to have to respond. So I, th I think uh, from a manufacturer point of view and probably from a dealer point of view, I'll let, I'll let Tim speak to that. It's probably better from their bottom line to not have as much choice as we used to have because it creates less competition. And that's where we're at right now. I mean, I'm not sure Tim would agree with this, but I think this is just the worst time to buy a car right now. We are at a moment where there are no new cars Used cars are probably 30% year-over-year increased in terms of their cost uh, or more. Uh, dealers can actually go to auctions and pay for used cars more than the new car MSRP. Uh, and so you've got a lot of really awkward and, and strange things happening now where very popular models, like Tim said, the Bronco, gosh, you know, the emails we're getting, people are, are reserving 2022s and 2023s. They're probably a year, maybe even two years out. Uh, and if you can hold out and not buy a car, I would hold out and wait till there is more supply because a lack of supply is never good for the consumer. And that's where we're at right now. Uh, Nathan, would you agree? Uh, not only would I agree, but I would say that consumers are starting to realize that Sometimes if they can't get the car they're looking for, you know, without a major markup, which is happening quite often, um, it's a great idea to look out of state. Um, it's a lot cheaper to fly on a $200 flight to a location and get your vehicle as opposed to spending three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 more on a car, you know, above its MSRP and then some. It's a difficult time. Roman's absolutely correct. You know, waiting a little bit is a good idea. Oh, and one other thing. The used car industry is also extraordinarily expensive right now. Used car prices are through the roof, so it's difficult on the consumer on both sides. Anecdotally, Tim, I've heard from friends, and I've confirmed this myself, that used car prices are soaring right now. I have a 2018 Volkswagen Atlas three-row SUV, pretty standard, and it's essentially becoming more and more and more valuable each day. What do you do with that as as a new car dealer when someone's car in their garage is worth more than they paid for it? Well, and uh, that, that that is happening some. There's been more variation in the used car price, let's say by percentage increase, by far than there is on the new car price. So I say the price adjustments have mostly been on the used car side. Um, they've been dramatic, and and Roman mentioned thirty percent. Some are like fifty percent, and what you described. Uh, Nathan Heppel is exactly right that some people uh, may have a car that's worth more money in their driveway than they paid for it new at a dealership. That's very rare, but it is happening, and we've never seen it happen in the industry before. So it's not all anti-consumer because consumers are seeing a net gain in the value of the car that's in their driveway. But it, but it, it's a double-edged sword. If they want the next new car and don't want that anymore, they they might have to pay a premium for the for their next car. Those consumers that are shopping the market the way uh, Nathan Adlin said, you know, shop throughout the city, throughout the state, or even out of state, they can find the best deal that they can on it. And they're actually doing that to a large degree. And it's smart. To add to what Tim and Roman were saying, um, there there is a, another side to this, which is it's really easy for, for us to say, hey, you know, hold off and don't buy your car or wait or go out of state. But there's over 5 million Americans that get into car accidents every year, and they need to replace their cars. There's fleets that need to buy cars. There are uh, rental car agencies that need to buy cars. They need inventory. And that needs to continue to happen. And as such, 
it's easy to say, hey, don't go buy a car, but there are people who need to buy a car. And those are the ones who I really feel bad for because in some cases, especially when insurance companies pay you X amount of dollars for what your car was worth and you have to go buy another one, it's a real pain. And it's, you know, we're doing our best to inform people uh, at TFL. We're actually telling people about good and, or, and difficult dealerships in terms of pricing and whatnot, where to look. But there's only so much we can do. And hopefully in time, maybe 18 months, maybe two years, this will all get better. But, you know, I wish we could predict exactly what that is. I was wondering if Tim might have a crystal ball where he can look at it and say, oh, yeah, uh, time to come back in 12 months. But I don't think so. So, Tim, is there a crystal ball that you can look into and, and let us know when this will kind of start to resolve itself? Yeah, well, I think it's I think. Um... Uh, we're looking at 2023, really, before we, we start getting any uh, measurable increase in, in inventory back on our lots. And I agree with Roman. I don't think it's going to go back to where a dealership may have had 1,000 or 1,200 units in stock and 500 of those are Rams. But I think we will get back to higher inventory levels than we have now. But I think we're still a year away from that. So it's a very compressed market. And that means a higher price market. It means a less choice market. And it means a more difficult market for consumers. Um, and um, that's all part of the supply chain uh, issues that we're working our way through. I think it is COVID related, but ultimately the COVID has, has um, attributed to the supply chain challenges and it's playing out right now, uh, mostly supply chain issues. Okay. We're hearing supply chain issues. We're hearing the lack of cars on dealership lots. We're hearing about the price of vehicles going up, both new and used. I want to turn now to what's going on with something called market adjustment and MSRP, the price recommended by car manufacturers. Roman, can you explain what market adjustments are? Yeah, I mean, the important part of MSRP is manufacturer, and here everything's in caps, right, suggested retail price. So, uh, you know, when times are good, you can go and negotiate a sale or a deal below that and that's what's been happening for a long time in america because there was a lot of competition but when times are i wouldn't say bad but when the supply certainly does not meet demand then dealers are free to charge you know whatever uh, price they choose it's a suggested price and what we're seeing is dealers taking advantage of this to make more money i mean we live in in a free market and uh, it, it certainly is something that that no one is forcing people to buy if if a bronco is let's say the first edition bronco retails for sixty three thousand dollars but uh, you know a lot of our fans and viewers have sent us uh, market adjustments of up to fifty thousand dollars on that vehicle so we're seeing not sixty thousand dollar broncos but a hundred and ten thousand dollar broncos of course no one's forcing anybody to pay that but uh, that's what we're seeing. Uh, and for a lot of people, it, it, it rubs them the wrong way because they feel like the, the MSRP should be the number they're paying, not the number that's suggested. Right. Well, I will uh, stand with Roman and anybody that thinks that it's frustrating when you see a price above what is supposed to be the price. Uh, but, you know, I experienced that the first home I bought in Denver when the home was listed at $420,000. And before I got uh, my contract signed, they had uh, three offers at more than $420,000. And so uh, my realtor said, well, you know, if you want this house, you're going to probably have to start at 460 in offers. It was much higher than the um, seller's planned retail price. So 
that's that's what's happening in the automotive industry too. But you know, one thing I have seen, I've seen some of the market adjustments that Nathan uh, Adlin has aired on the on the TFL cars or TFL trucks, and and I, man, I understand the frustration on that, but I have not yet seen before we got into this market adjustment price or limited inventory situation, I didn't see anything on the fact that 98.6% of the vehicles sold in the United States, according to J.D. Power PIN study in, say, 2019, were sold under MSRP. So it, it works both ways. And most, most vehicles, most new cars in, in America today are still sold under MSRP. But um, um, what I would suggest in the, the cure for a market adjustment is to either not buy that car or buy it from a dealer that will not sell over MSRP. And there are several of those out there. Uh, we have a lot in our membership. There are a lot all over the U.S. And and when you see that dealer that will not sell over, over that's higher than MSRP, that dealer should be rewarded for doing that and actually recognize they're not the dealer that sells over MSRP uh, is recognized for, for doing the, the opposite. They really should be rewarded, the dealerships that sell at or below MSRP, because right now, there aren't as many as there were before, that's for sure. And, you know, unfortunately, it isn't just special models. We're seeing everything from Honda Ridgelines to um, Mitsubishi Mirages being sold way over MSRP. For, and, it, you know, you can literally see that some of them have drawn on the sticker, you know, a markup of X amount of dollars. And those dealerships, unfortunately, you know, when this is over, some consumers will remember who, you know, which dealership did this. Um, but the other side of it is the ones who aren't doing this, the ones who are not playing games, who are playing fair and doing right by the consumer, they should be recognized. And fortunately, we do actually have on our websites, uh, TFL car, uh, tfltruck.com, um, we actually mentioned this, uh, several dealerships that are worth noting uh, throughout the country that uh, have managed to play by the rules and are actually doing right by the customer. Yeah, the other thing I would say is um, maybe we are at the point where we're seeing the dark at the beginning of the tunnel. I know that's uh, I know that's not great, but at least we're seeing the tunnel now. Wow, <laughs> uh, I've been I've been I've been talking to you know people inside the industry, uh, and they think that we're seeing you know a um, hopefully uh, a, an uptick in chip production. Uh, you know that doesn't mean that there's an uptick in all the other bits and pieces that you need to sell the car. What's terrifying is that when you think about it, let's say we get all the chips in the world, if you're missing like a door handle or you're missing, you know, a headlight, you still can't sell that car. And that, that's what's scary. But hopefully the supply chain issues are working themselves out. And at, at the end of the day, it's in no one's best interest, you know, to not sell cars, be it the car buyer, be it the dealer, or be it the manufacturer. And so I, I think everybody's working really, really hard to get to a point where there is uh, an equilibrium between supply and demand will it be like it used to be, like Tim said, where there were you know thousands of cars on a lot. Probably not, uh, but it certainly won't be as bad as it is today, where used car prices are through the roof and new car prices are also up there, and a lot of cars are just unobtainium right now. Uh, but I, I think I think like I said, I think we're we're seeing the tunnel at least. Um, so so there is some good news on the horizon. We have had such a great discussion. We have gotten to so many points and we could probably talk for much longer, but let's try to look forward now. Six to eight months, maybe a year. Uh, what are we going to be looking at in terms of the Colorado car industry overall? Tim? 
Well, uh, hopefully we'll be back to a little more uh, choice for consumers on dealership lots because that's that's going to be good for everybody. I think the best is yet to come. I, it's it's hard to say, uh, see how we can say that at this point in time, but I think the industry's best days are still ahead. Uh, something to look forward to that's coming to us real soon, and that is new cars. Extraordinary models are coming out. Almost every automaker is doing something interesting, unique, and timely. Uh, Colorado is supposed to be one of the green states uh, by 2040. There's going to be a ton of electric vehicles hitting the road and plug-in hybrids. And some of them are just hitting the road now. The new Ford Maverick, all of us agree at TFL that it is a game changer. Um, there are a lot of other small pickup trucks coming out, tiny ones and, and really massive ones. Trucks are still dominating the United States, but we're going to see electric trucks hitting the road. We're just starting to see that now. So there is so much to look forward to in terms of new product, interesting product, and even new automakers that are going to hit the scene. Uh, I, I know that, <laughs> that it's going to be a headache for Tim, but um, you know, there's, there's a bunch of new guys out there. Rivian's one of them, and there's going to be other ones that are going to be out there. And so for the consumer, at least there's a lot of cool stuff to look at, and hopefully... Hopefully, you guys will be able to buy this stuff fairly soon. Yeah, it's you know it's really it's a really great time to be buying a new car because we're in this uh, seismic change from uh, gas to electrification. I was initially really terrified that electric cars were going to be like like toasters, right, uh, and just no fun. And what what's happened is the exact opposite. I mean, there's just some really fun, interesting, and cool cars. We are going to see uh, cars that will start to drive themselves, not not in the truest sense where you get in and it drives you from the airport home, but certainly on, on our highways, cars will start to drive themselves. And that's a really cool thing, too, because that's a whole other level of technology. Uh, so there's just a lot of cool stuff coming down the road. Uh, and um, I can't wait, like, six months from now to be talking about electric off-roaders and how cool it is to, like, be, let's say we're here in Colorado, which I love, uh, going up and over a red cone in a vehicle that's not making any noise and you can just hear the birds and the um, babbling brook and, you know, be at one with nature as opposed to, you know, destroying it with uh, loud V8. So there's just a lot, a lot of cool stuff coming down the road. Uh, and we're lucky enough to be kind of at the forefront of that, but it'll soon be here. So it sounds like there is a lot to be excited for, but that there's also going to be a lot of waiting too. Thanks so much for joining us. Real Thank pleasure. You. Tim Jackson, president of the Colorado Automobile Dealers Association, the voice of car dealers in Colorado, and automotive journalists Roman Micah and Nathan Adlin of TFL Cars based in Boulder. Are you seeing any cars way over or way under MSRP or any other interesting things in your hunt for a new ride? Let us know. Email us at coloradomatters at cpr.org. We'd love to hear from you. When we come back, why some farmers are pushing back against wind and solar, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. A more reliable CPR stream on your phone. An easy way to tell CPR what you're thinking. Better browsing. These are just a few of the improvements to the CPR app. If you already use the app, you'll need to update to the new version on your phone or tablet. And get the latest from CPR News, CPR Classical, and Indy 1023. Everywhere you go. The new CPR app. Search for Colorado Public Radio in the Apple App Store or in Google Play.
the state is counting on a rapid transition to wind and solar to meet its climate goals. Major utilities are hoping to build a lot of those renewables on the eastern plains. But as CPR Sam Brash reports, farmers in one county are fighting back and saying, not in their backyards. It's an August morning when the Washington County Commission gathers for its regular public meeting. A web recording captures the event at the county fairgrounds in Akron, about a two-hour drive from Denver. The camera shows dozens of people packed onto folding chairs. Among them is Lacey Harmon. I'm a fifth-generation Washington County agriculturalist. My family farms and ranches south of Otis. And she leads a group called Sacred Horizons, which is fighting against renewables. At the meeting, she testifies in favor of proposed regulations, regulations renewable energy supporters say would amount to a de facto ban on wind towers and solar farms. We have a moral obligation to preserve our land and our ecosystem, and we should approach anything with a lot of caution. The opposition comes as Colorado's biggest power companies, like Excel Energy and Tri-State Generation, have set their sights on Washington County. Its consistent breeze and sunny skies makes it a great place for renewables. And while some residents see economic opportunity, others fear industrial development in a region dominated by wheat and cattle. We have to stop sacrificing agricultural land for big city living. I caught up with Harmon after the meeting. At the end of the day, she says her work isn't really all that different from local efforts on the front range to oppose fossil fuel development. Whether it's oil and gas or turbines or the next thing down the road, we need to make sure and have a good set of regulations because that will make good neighbors. Her group has also hired a lawyer who knows a thing or two about those oil and gas fights. Chris McGowan is now a private attorney in Kansas. But until this summer, he worked as a lobbyist for the Colorado branch of the American Petroleum Institute. That led me to a pretty basic question. Chris, I'll just ask this straight up. Is API or like any part of the oil and gas industry supporting local opposition to wind and solar in Washington County? Let me make this as clear as crystal clear as I possibly can. There is no, and I mean absolutely no connection. There is no funding. There is no relationship. This is a grassroots engagement by a bunch of very concerned and engaged citizens. And McGowan says those citizens have simple concerns about the impact of renewable energy development. Interrupted views, roads torn up during construction, the low-frequency whoosh of turbine blades. We're going to develop oil and gas in a manner that's protective of public health, safety, welfare, and the environment. I don't see why wind energy or solar energy would be any different. No matter who's behind it, local opposition to wind and solar development worries Michael Girard. He leads the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia University, which develops legal strategies to support clean energy. Recently, it surveyed the country. And we found more than 100 instances in which there was serious local opposition to a wind or solar project. Gerard says that opposition could derail efforts to combat climate change. He's glad some states, like New York, have gotten ahead of it and fast-tracked the permitting process for renewable energy projects. I think we may need to see more of that if we're really going to achieve our objectives in moving away from fossil fuels. But not everyone thinks the state needs to get involved. How about a cup of coffee? Kit Parker now farms wheat in Elbert County, southwest of Washington County. His property is now part of the Rush Creek Wind Farm, which Excel Energy finished a few years ago. He says the turbines on his land don't interfere with his work, and there's a bonus, regular lease payments from the company. 
I'm a capitalist. I invest my dollars in this farm. That's a a win-win deal. And he's not the only one bringing in cash. Turbines and transmission lines provide tax revenue for Albert County. So much, it's been able to set aside millions for a rainy day fund. That's good for the entire community. By and large, uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a lifestyle question. This is a business decision, and it's a great one. And Washington County commissioners appeared to notice those benefits. Earlier this month, it approved a far less restrictive set of rules than the ones activists fought for earlier this summer. One commissioner followed his vote with a statement. He wanted to keep Main Streets going in eastern Colorado, but said that's not easy without money. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. It's been one year since the largest wildfire ever recorded in Boulder County, the Calwood Fire, covered more than 10,000 acres of public and privately owned forest. Those forests have different uses, and the fire has experts thinking about how to replant and the best recipe for coordinated reforestation. CPR's Miguel Otawala has the story. At the Calwood Education Center, it's never too early to learn about the outdoors. The campus tucked away high up in the mountains of the Roosevelt National Forest. On this crisp morning, a group of young kids are going over the game plan before they start a day-long trek through the woods. Keep hydrated and go to the bathroom when you need to. Don't wait. Don't wait and wait and wait. But the center's executive director, Rafael Salgado, has something else on his mind. How to salvage more than half of the nearby forest that burned in a wildfire last year. The Calwood Fire covered more than 10,000 acres and burned entire mountainsides to a crisp, leaving nothing but charred tree trunks poking out of the dusty ground. Salgado wonders what he can do to make the forest grow again. You know, I was asking some experts, you know, where's the recipe for that? You know, where is it? Where can I follow a recipe so that I can actually do that? And they told me that they don't have one yet. Forests are massive, so humans have tried to make them more manageable. We've sliced them up into different sizes that are owned by groups as small as private homeowners and as large as the federal government. So what's the best way to replant the forest to meet the needs of all those users? Answering this question has become increasingly urgent as fires burn larger and hotter due to climate change. To get a better sense of the challenges ahead, Salgado and I hopped in his pickup truck and drove into the burn scar. Over the years, Salgado and his team have tried to control the forest by cutting down trees to leave some empty space. The fire came through here, and I knew, I knew that this this forest was going to survive. They weren't able to cut every section before the fire, including the tops of mountains that he says belong to another landowner. If you look up the hill, those trees didn't survive. The Calwood Fire also burned 4,400 acres of land managed by Boulder County, including at least 20 homes. The county had cut down trees beforehand. It also lit controlled fires to help manage overgrowth. Stefan Reinold is Boulder County senior forester. He says that all groups are responsible for restoring their own land, though there are opportunities to coordinate the work. Completing random acts of restoration uh, doesn't quite, you know, help solve the problem. It's not exactly a cohesive approach, but Reinold says different areas of the forest may have different priorities. There, there isn't a one-size-fit-all, and, and I don't even think there should be. I, I think that, you know, if, 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 if it's your property, right, and it burned and you want to have trees on your property, then I think that's it's okay for you to plant some trees. The Nature Conservancy has a slightly different view. 
The organization is experimenting with tens of thousands of seeds in Ponderosa pine forests across the state. Catherine Schlegel is the watershed forest manager for the group's Colorado chapter. She hopes their work will lead to a reforestation recipe for land managers like Salgado. The research isn't done, but Schlegel has a pretty good idea what a healthy forest should look like after it's restored. They should look like small islands. When we we see small islands, it's dense, it's clumpy, it's irregular, it's imperfect, and that's a forest. Schlegel says the best time to replant is right after a wildfire, when there are no animals or other vegetation. They've planted seeds in little pods and paired them with chili seeds so they're protected from predators and can grow into trees. She says foresters need to start collecting more seeds, 10 times the current amount. Only then can they create the blueprint the Forest Service, local governments, and landowners are desperate for. They're saying, can I do this? Is this ready? We're saying, we're, we're, we're still in a learning phase. On the drive back to the education center, Salgado spots a group of high school students planting trees on the burn hillside. They had been working all morning and still had another section of the forest to go. There you go, look at that. You planted a tree. I'm the Lorax. (laughs) Salgado and other land managers are doing what they can with the knowledge they currently have. Right now, that often means planting trees grown in nurseries to replace the ones that burned in the fire. I'm Miguel Otarola. CPR News. When we come back, for the first time in years, Pikes Peak has a poet laureate, and she hopes to connect people in new ways. Independent local journalism struggles to survive in many parts of the country, and a new film takes a look at one small town in Iowa. Storm Lake follows the challenges of a small local paper trying to stay afloat. I'm CPR arts reporter Monica Castillo, inviting you to join me and the filmmakers for a conversation about their documentary as part of the Denver Film Festival. What we lose when we lose local news. Sunday at 2 at the Denver Film Festival. Details at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel in Garfield County. Denver International is one of the busiest airports in the world. On display for all those travelers is a collection of unusual art DIA has collected over the years. CPR's Andrew Villegas tells us with the airport undergoing huge renovations right now, it's looking for new art and artists to continue that tradition. The surface is sand, sand texture. So the charcoal sticks do make a little bit of a sound in here. Leo Tanguma is hard at work in a makeshift studio in the back of a gallery at the University of Northern Colorado. He's scraping charcoal against a wood panel for a huge mural he's working on with college students. I call it a glimpse of our cultural symbols. This piece depicts Chicano heroes, astronauts, civic leaders, the singer Selena, His art is often about the struggle for equality for all people. He has gotten to share those messages with millions of people at DIA. There were times when I couldn't believe my good luck, right? Because I know Denver has some wonderful artists, some incredible artists. And uh, to be selected from those groups is a real honor to me. Tanguma's art also tells stories of women's struggles and the environment. The human condition striving to overcome oppressions of the past and trying to look for a better future. Tanguma's large-scale murals usually hang in the main terminal. You can't see them right now because of DIA's construction, but they'll be back. One is bright, with kids dressed in their country's folk costumes gathered around a fallen soldier. 
A second panel shows a soldier with refugees huddled around him. Tanguma's experience as a Coloradan hanging their art at DIA is one that airport officials hope to replicate with other Coloradans, as well as artists from all over the world. The airport is expanding and looking for new pieces to fill its spaces. It's safe to say they have some big hooves, uh, shoes to fill. The Mustang. I love the Mustang. I think he's just it's a, such a unique art piece in the city. Heather Kaufman is DIA's art director, and she's not shy about how she feels about the big blue horse, Lucifer, which is DIA's most obvious and glowingly weird piece of public art. He's definitely here to stay. Inside the main terminal, travelers scuttle around dragging bags. They're in such a hurry that they may not know why there's so much art at DIA. 1% of the total cost of every big construction project in Denver has to be set aside for public art. The airport initially cost Denver about $3 billion. That's a lot of art. The gate expansion means there will be a lot more coming. Near Southwest Airlines baggage claim, Jesse Yanez waits for his bags. He's from Odessa, Texas, in Denver for a Broncos game. Over his right shoulder, a grinning gargoyle stands watch. It's pretty odd being watched by a gargoyle while bags cycle around the conveyor belt. Uh, is it weird? Yeah, some of it, that stuff there, that's pretty weird. <laughs> you know, but it doesn't bother me. I'm all for the weird stuff. I think it actually encourages people to do some research and read. Uh, Otherwise, most people probably wouldn't even read if, if, if it wasn't something that piqued their interest. It's weird is a common theme with DIA's art. And it's one Kaufman, DIA's art director, leans into. She says it gives airport officials the chance to help people better understand the art and its place at DIA, even if they're drawn to do that research because of some eccentric theories that have emerged around the public art at DIA. I think the quirkier, the better. We love our conspiracy theories around the art or the airport in general. It's an opportunity that we get to educate around the conspiracy theories, and it creates that conversation around our art, and it's what we're known for. Those conspiracy theories range from secret messaging about mass extinctions, to new world totalitarian governments, to the Illuminati, to the origins of COVID-19. And they've even bubbled up around Leo Tanguma's work. Back at his studio in Greeley, he says he's heard the whispers. But in his mind, it just comes with the territory. It's a humorous feeling that, that I have from those idiots, right? Because there's nothing conspiratorial about my murals. For Tanguma, just the chance for Coloradans like him to make work that millions of people see each year is life-changing, even if it comes with criticism. It's a feeling of fulfillment, so people traveling from there can see themselves portrayed in some way. And I'm sure they appreciate what they're seeing. They're seeing themselves reflected in the murals. DIA may be an international airport, but the stories travelers make in the state and the ones they see in the expanding art collection there are and will be distinctly Coloradan. You could see some of the new art at DIA by 2023. I'm Andrew Viegas, CPR News. There's a new poet laureate in the Pikes Peak region. Ashley Cornelius is a nationally recognized and award-winning spoken word poet in Colorado Springs. She talked about her work with my colleague, Abigail Beckman. A lot of your work focuses on your experiences as a Black woman growing up in predominantly white spaces. Tell me more about that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I grew up here in Colorado Springs and didn't really have a lot of people who looked like me. I didn't have a Black teacher until I got into college. And so it's really understanding how I exist and my value in a space where you might not have role models who look like you. So my art really gives a voice not only to my younger self, but hopefully to encourage other folks who may not have a strong representation in their cities that they matter and their voice is important. And now in one of your poems, Defy Silence, you bring up a stereotype of Black people being loud, but use that to sort of change the meaning of being loud, saying it's not about the volume of your voice, it's about making up for years of oppressed silence. Would you read that poem for us? Yeah, absolutely. People have often called us Black folks loud, boisterous and thundering. Our laugh cackling cackles and exuberant exaltings deemed uncouth in certain spaces. Our voices, cacophony to most ears, jazz to those with a seasoned palate. We turn up to turbulent bass levels, we bump Tupac, we blast Tony Braxton, we crank up Billie Holiday, we provide front row concerts to the entire neighborhood. We do not know how to mourn quietly. We wail and scream in hopes our voices are resurrection enough for our buried, even our whispers are seismic. Our voices are the literal reincarnations of our ancestors' prayers. There is no distinguishing between inside and outside voices. As caged birds now free, we sing too loud and too often making up for years of oppressed silence because being loud means you're alive. It means you have found a way to survive and are celebrating and we are defying darkness with demonstrative decorations of love. Dr. King once said, our lives begin to end the moment we stay silent about the things that matter, which is to say, Black lives matter, which is to say Black voices matter. When textbooks silence slavery and call it a cultural exchange, we get louder. When innocent Black girls go missing and the news reports a cat stuck in a tree instead of her name, instead of her picture, instead of an Amber Alert, we get louder. And when innocent Black men are killed and their murderers are called heroes, we get louder. See, we have been loud for centuries. We will continue to raise our voices against injustice. We will dedicate our harmonies to Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., a man whose voice was powerful and his impact is still reverberating in our ears today. This poem is not about the volume of our voices. This is about speaking up in a world that is expecting you to stay silent. So will you join us in Be Loud? Will you defy silence with your voice? Wow, thank you. Now, I'm curious, do you remember the first time that you felt like poetry was a way for you to be heard in the midst of all this silence? Yeah, absolutely. So as a young kid, I would journal all the time. And then I realized if I read my journal, I was like, oh, these terrible things are happening. I don't want to read this. And so at a young age, I realized if I created poetry, then I could protect myself in my experiences. And I realized I could not only give myself a voice and protection, but as I grew and started working with youth and doing poetry therapy, I saw the transformative and healing powers that I could reach someone who had a completely different experience through poetry. And that's when I knew there's something here, right? There is a message and experience and a type of medicine that so many of us need. And this role as the new poet laureate isn't your first visible poetry project in the Pikes Peak region. You're involved in a lot of stuff. What do you see as the most effective way to amplify poetry here? And where would you most like to see change? 
I think where it's going to be most effective is integrating poetry throughout the region, right? We see it in the art community, but I want to be at city council. I want to be at building openings. I want to be at board meetings. And what I want is for people to see me as someone who is not academically a poet and is just a person in the community and say, I can be that. I can do that. And poetry can look like someone's lived experience. That's Ashley Cornelius, the new Poet Laureate for the Pikes Peak region. She spoke with KRCC's Abigail Beckman. As we say goodbye, let's hear Cornelius read one more poem. It's called Big Bang Expansive. She is big bang expansive, takes up universal presence, is not colonized by man, emits meteorite laughter. She cries constellations and her smile, supernova combustion. Over time, she learns to be more planet than galaxy, notices her meteorites burn up in the atmosphere of his presence, knows her body's boundary rings are not welcome between his space. Told to revolve around someone else's sun, how her sonic voice will never escape his black hole. She is eclipsed. Eclipsed by his shadow, she can be easy to forget but she is fireball nebulous. Her solar flares have a way of disrupting his darkness. The speed of light can't escape a black hole, but she's never slowed down. She dances Northern lights and sings solar system hymns, grabbed asteroid belt around her Milky Way and reclaimed her space. Her halo can be seen for light years. Her body is expanding to the outer limits. Her meteorite laughter are messing things up. She is more galaxy than planet. She is big bang expansive. She always has been. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel, with special thanks to Abigail Beckman. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.